Shema. In Hebrew, there is no word for obey. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, we know that that's not just true in Judaism. It's also true in marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the men, amen, right? Our wife says something, and listening, obeying is one of the same for us. It's how, right? I mean, come on. It's true. I'd also like to affirm what Vanessa said, that she fights differently when she knows the battle is won. It is a true thing. I was like, I think I was, you know, hanging out with the college students. I was out there. I was like, I think that's a word for me, but I'm not sure. I'm going to respond to this. I was almost came to the altar there. But she was a little too close to those hammers for my comfort. So I stayed where I was. Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Powerful words. It's interesting, right, when we watch videos like this, which we're going to be talking about at length in this, in this sermon series that we're launching tonight, that so much of the language of the Old Testament finds its way into the New Testament, but it is contextualized for a different time, for a different people, and a different language. Shema is all throughout the New Testament. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows, it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings, right, and doesn't obey, it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Listen to what Jesus says. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Father, we pray that by the end of our days, Whenever that comes for each of us, if there were one word that speaks to who we were and our relationship with you and the life that we live this side of eternity, oh God, may it be Shema. That the natural inclination of our hearts would be to listen to you. Above all voices and influence in our lives and obey. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody said together. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but back in the day when I was playing sports, we would have to get an annual physical, right? Anybody remember that? Back when you were in school playing sports, you'd go to the doctor, and one of the tests that they often did was the patellar reflex test, the little triangular hammer that they would reach for as you're sitting on the edge of the examination table and they would touch this tendon right here below your kneecap and just kind of a brisk touch and your leg would respond. You're not trying to respond. You're not moving it naturally. It is a reflex when that stimulus engages your body. Now, interestingly enough, they don't care anything about your knee. They're actually testing for the health of a certain part of your spine. But because it's really hard to see in here, they stimulate it there. And if you have the right response, it's an indication that you're okay for that series of your spinal cord. 
Now, I don't know about you, but out of all of the physicals that I've had in life, out of all the patellar reflex tests that I've had, every time the doctor reached for a hammer, it did not look like any of these, for which I am very grateful. Because if the doctor comes around the corner and he's holding this, right, it's going to elicit quite a response from us. There's a reflex that's going to come that's quite different than what we had signed up for. The hammer that is used should fit the job that's being done. And when Jesus taught, people's response to him was that he taught with real authority. And that real authority was not just because he was confident that he was right. It's because he was trying to restore an expectation that people had the capacity for an obedience that they had lost. And so when he was teaching 2,000 years ago, people were shocked with the way that he interacted with people because they were accustomed to people teaching with reluctance, not because they weren't sure that what they said was true, but because they doubted whether or not people would do it. And Jesus was trying to bring humanity back to a place of restoring the two sides of the coin that had come apart. Mankind were listeners, but they did not obey. And Jesus was here to do many things. But one of them most certainly was to restore the Shema of the human heart. And as you're going to see tonight, sometimes it requires a hammer than much bigger than we would prefer. I don't know about you, but I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. That when the Holy Spirit prompts me, that when the leading of the Lord comes, when the Holy Spirit is, is probing my will, I want him to find that my reflex, I don't have to think about it, I don't have to contemplate it, that I know his voice, and that I am reflexively obedient. I've entitled this series that's going to be lasting for several weeks, Project Here. Project Here, because I want the culture of our church to be one of reflexive obedience to God. Now, let me show you this scale because I want you to be familiar with it. It's going to be easy to remember because it's three very simple words. All of the areas of our life fall somewhere on this scale. And you might fall into a place of rebellion when it comes to certain things about your life. And then you might be reflexive in your obedience in others. For, for, we're complicated people. So, so it, it, it could be that, that 
that you've got this person, whether it's a coworker and a, and, a, and a neighbor who's a real enemy to you because they've betrayed trust, they're saying things about you that aren't true, when you know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of the message that we just read from at the capstone with the building the house on sinking sand, that in that same sermon, Jesus says that we have to love our neighbor. But I don't know, I don't know about you, but that's hard for me. So oftentimes for me, that's a place of rebellion in my life. But then there are other areas of my life, like the way that I love my wife, right? It's just reflexive obedience. Right? You tracking with me? I know. There's other areas of our life we do it, but we don't want to. Now, that's better than rebellion, but it's not where we're supposed to be. We're on a journey in this life with Jesus, and he's working to change us and transform us so that our lives are a reflection of his because one of the things that Jesus said about himself, I only do and say what I see and hear the Father doing because he was the perfect picture of Shema. He heard and he did. And every area of our life is a renovation project to get our lives out of where we are and into where we're supposed to be so that we're living daily with a heart of reflexive obedience to him, Shema. Now, I would imagine that all of you here, if you haven't, you will at some point, you've done some type of renovation project in your home. If you've not done a renovation project in your home, then you've probably seen it on HGTV or some other type of program that you've watched. And there are some principles that guide us and govern us when we're doing home renovation projects. They take longer than you think, it costs more than you think, and it's harder than you think. Let me say it again. It takes longer than you think, it costs more than you, than you think, and it's harder than you think. And if you know what you do, that that's true of buildings, it is most certainly true of the human heart. If there is an area of our life that we would say, Fred, I'm just out and out rebellious when it comes to that, it's going to take longer, it's going to cost more, and it's going to be harder than we think. The reason why when people are doing renovation projects for homes is because they have a vision for how incredible it's going to become. So they're willing to pay the price, they're willing to do the work, and they're willing to put in the time, they're willing to overcome because they're working towards something that they see as a prize for them. You and I need to get a vision for Shema. You and I need to get a vision for what our life would look like if we were walking in perfect harmony with Jesus. Jesus describes that kind of life in some pretty flowerly language. The best, I think, is in John 10.10 when he says, The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might have life to the fullest possible measure, which is a promise for all people. Jesus is saying that whatever life you have now, as great and grand or as broken as it may seem, And usually we're a combination of both. Jesus is saying, the life that I have for you is nothing short of heaven on earth. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. This is what the Lord says. 
Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Listen to what he says. They are like stunned, stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope of the future. They will live in barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, Shema, and have made their hope and confidence in Him. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Listen to what it says. Their leaves stay green. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives and I give all people their due reward according to what their actions deserve. Nature is the perfect picture of Shema because it does not choose whether or not it will respond to the environment that it is in. The tree that you plant in your yard, the fruits and vegetables that you put in your garden, they don't wake up one day and say, I'm not going to respond to the sunlight today. Not going to do it. Say no to photosynthesis. They don't do that. The, The plant, when you put the water in the pot, does not say. If it needs water, I'm not going to drink that. Came out of the tap, don't like it. I want it chilled and filtered out of the refrigerator, just like you drink. It doesn't. The reason why Scripture so frequently uses nature as a metaphor and illustration and an analogy for humanity, in part, is because God is trying to help us to see what Shema looks like. That we listen Receive and respond reflexively. That it happens in such unison, it's hard to tell apart one from the other. If we want the reflex of our hearts to be one of obedience to God, a return to Shema, We must do the hard work that transforms it from being desperately wicked to delightfully worshipful. Let me read that phrase again. We must do the hard work that transforms it from being desperately wicked to delightfully worshipful. And it's going to take longer, cost more, and will be harder than we think. Let me give you this gentleman's name, Don Jelpi, G-E-L-P-I, Don Jelpi. He was a Jesuit priest who lived from 1934 until he passed in 2011. 
He's one of the great theological minds of our day. In the late 1960s, early in his career, Jelpe became involved with what became known as the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement. And through his involvement, Jelpe encountered an emotional and spiritual transformation characterized by a profound form of prayer and intensely deep relationship with God. He later described this as his personal Pentecost. And it was through his life and in his journey of devotion to Christ and in his commitment to helping other people live a life of reflexive obedience, he developed what he calls the five conversions. And what I want to show you tonight is this diagram. And this diagram is a powerful picture for us to help us see where we're going to be not just going on this series together because we're going to be doing a deep dive in each one of these throughout this series, but I want you to see the journey I hope you go on with me in listening and doing coming back together. And what I would suggest to you tonight that these five conversions represent the renovation project of the heart. The change and the transformation that needs to come. Think about it as if you were renovating an entire house. Each one of these conversions represent a certain part of the home. And if you don't renovate at all, it's not actually going to be complete. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to be fully renovated to reflect Christ so that I am a life of Shema like he is. If I'm going to be a person whose house is built upon the bedrock and not the sinking sand, if my life is going to be one where listening and doing and the gap that exists between the two are almost non-existence, where Shema is the word that speaks to who I am, then these five conversions have got to be the experiences that I give myself to in this life. I'm a part of a pastor's mentor program that's launched this year. We had our first retreat over the last few days. I just got back into town this morning, and it was in a book that I was assigned to read called Moses in Pharaoh's House by John J. Markey. These notes are online as they are every week if you're a note taker and we're moving faster than you would prefer. Moses in Pharaoh's House by John J. Markey, and, and it was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard of Don Jelpe. It's the first time I had ever heard of these conversions. It was one of those moments where I'm like, I've been in pastoral ministry for some 20 years. Why is it that I'm just seeing these things now? It's powerful. And then I was doing a separate study on this idea of Shema. And I was reading one day and came across it, and I just felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So I was studying, and I was researching that, and I was moving back and forth from all these different areas of responsibility. And as I was doing that, I, just, I felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit say, Fred, this idea of Shema and the five conversions, they go together. And as I began to sketch and scratch and make notes and read and pray... The image that you see on the screen began to take shape in my imagination. That these five conversions represent the space between listening and doing. They represent the transformation that, 
that if we would avail ourselves to them, the gap between listening and doing could come together. And it's a journey that I hope that you will take with me this year. Effective conversion. Let me give you some definitions. Effective conversion happens when a person takes personal responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. Come on, Kim Treese, raise your hand. Where's Kim Treese? Right there. Come on. I know. If you're a lady and you need some of this, you go see her. Effective conversion happens when a person takes responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. We are not responsible for the way that other people harm and hurt us in our life. We're not. All of us have been victims in some measure. But we are responsible. We are responsible for our healing. An effective conversion speaks to us about that process and walks us through an examination of our own heart and inspires us to move forward in this life. Intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth of yourself and the falsity of others. No, that's not right. (laughs) No, no, no. See, that's what we think, and that's how we act, and that's how we live, but that's not what this is. And it's because that's how we think and act and live, which is why we needed intellectual conversion. Intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth and falsity of one's own beliefs by examining and testing them. All of us have biases. All of us have bought into ideas, into narratives, whether they are political or whether or not they are doctrinal or whether or not they are cultural or social. All of us have got to be willing to say, God, show me where I'm wrong and where I'm right. Because our prayer is in conflict, God, show them where they're wrong and how I'm right. It is the prayer of every teenager in the world. Dear God, show my parents how ridiculous they are, right? Our natural inclination of our human experience is that we're right, other people are wrong. Intellectual conversion. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral virtues one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. This one's twofold, it's powerful. Means that if we believe things are wrong and right, Does our life reflect it? We all need a moral conversion because if our life and morality were like a scale, our scale of what we believe to be right and wrong is full and our practice is light. And God says, those things better start to level out because if you believe it to be true, then why aren't you practicing it? Not just for you. This is why it's two parts. 
not just for you, but understanding the implication that your life poorly lived in comparison to what you already believe to be true has an implication for the other people that are around you. People that you are in relationship with suffer because of the inequity that exists between what we profess and how we live. Thank you. I think it's good too. <laughs> Socio-political conversion. I know. This is going to make some of you nervous, which is why you need it. Social-political conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. See, moral conversion's greatest implication has to do with the people with whom we are in relationship. Socio-political conversion says to us, it's not just about how it affects them, it's that we are also responsible for the wider, greater world. And when people have inequity between their morality and their practice, not only are they harming the people that are close to them, but when you take all the people that have inequity and add them up together, we're harming the world that Jesus put us in to save. Religious conversion. Now, I'm restating this one. Admittedly, if you go and find these, especially in this book in Moses and Pharaoh's house, because it was an academic writing, it was written from the perspective of many religions, but we are not many religions here at the City Life Church. We're Jesus people. So I'm just letting you know I've changed this one. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of our lives. Many of you, if not most of you in this room, have had a religious conversion. You've made a vow of devotion to Christ. And most of us, including myself, have been raised in a church context that has only ever talked to us about a religious conversion and maybe a moral conversion, but little else beyond that. Shema, reflexive obedience, and the renovation of the human heart that's going to take us there. Matthew 13, 13 to 17. That is why I use these parables. This is Jesus giving commentary on his own teaching. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear but they don't really listen or understand. Shema. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend, for the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, for they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. 
I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they didn't see it, and they long to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Jesus is telling us something powerful about why he taught in parables and how the Holy Spirit still uses them today. It is as if he has a little hammer in his hand that's shaped like a triangle. And he's constantly tapping the heart to see if there's a reflex of obedience. Jesus is saying that one of the reasons why he taught in parables, one of the reasons why he didn't speak plainly, right? There's a misunderstanding. Many people assume that he taught in parables because it brought greater clarity. And then there's some texts that say that. And then we find some texts like this where Jesus says, no, I taught in parables for obscurity. And how do we reconcile those two things? It's because Jesus was talking about two different kinds of people. Parables brought clarity to people who had a response of the heart to want to obey. But to those who didn't, it was confusing to them. Because the Holy Spirit was testing the heart to see how people would respond. When, when they heard something that was a little bit obscured, when it wasn't just made simple for them, was their desire to understand. Did, did they begin to contemplate? Did they discuss? Did they, did they pray? What was their reaction? What was their reflex to these teachings? Because the Holy Spirit is trying to know what comes next. And this is what comes next. Because if he has to put down the hammer that looks for the reflex to do some demolition before there can be a transformation, you better believe he's willing to do it. For so many of us, who are praying and believing for breakthrough, it has not come because we are not willing to let the word of God break us down. And there can be no breakthrough without a breaking down. There cannot. I'm, I'm using hammers because many of us in this room have used them in some capacity as a tool. The Bible talks about swords because the sword was the common tool of the day then. But most of you don't have a sword in your toolbox, or at least you shouldn't. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. In the King James, it says quick, which means alive. Quick and powerful. Like a two-edged sword, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow. What's the writer? Now, we get, oh, we love the poetry of that, but it's violent. It's saying that the Holy Spirit will take the Word of God when we need it, like a ninja, and start cutting stuff up in our lives that should not be there. Cutting away what holds us back. Like a demolition team coming in with goggles and hammers to make ready for the work that you and I need Jesus to do in our lives. So when we read in John 1, in verse 14, it says, The Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh 
and dwelt among us, we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father. Here it comes, full of grace and truth. In the Greek, it's charis and aletheia. Truth, when it says that that he was full of grace and truth, it was saying that all truth resides in Jesus and all healing resides in Jesus. And that before we can receive the healing, we need to avail ourselves to the truth. And unless we avail ourselves to the truth, unless we're willing to let the truth of God break us down, the healing cannot come. You cannot renovate until you first demolish. All of us have areas of our lives where we need the truth of God to break us down. All of us have to become like Jacob and wrestle with Jesus. We're going to leave with a limp, but there's a healing that's going to come. This series, this study, these conversations are going to feel like Jesus is breaking us down, dismantling and rearranging our lives because we are going to experience the breakthrough of Shema. If we are going to have a heart whose reflex is obedience to God, we need his truth and his grace. Shema. I'm going to invite the worship team to come just to play. We're not going to sing a closing song. For some of you, this series is going to be one of the most challenging message series that you've ever heard in your life. It's go- it is. Because it's going, to, it's, it's going to ask you to wrestle with things that you've believed your whole life. It's, it's going to ask you to confront biases and, and perspectives and, and falsities that, that, that you believe are true. See, it, it's one thing to recognize we have a bias and have a falsity, and, and we're just familiar with it, and we're stubborn with it, and so we don't want to change it, but it's something else when we see the falsity as the truth itself. It's hard. It's hard. But that's why when Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send someone to be with you, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. We we like this idea of him being a comforter because at some point, we've used a comforter. It's warm, it's gentle, and he is that to us at times. But the word that in the Greek that's used is parakletos, which, which also means advocate, which is the word that used, was used for an attorney in Jesus' day in a trial when people are trying to decide between what's true and what's false. And see, part of the idea of the Holy Spirit, part of the ministry of who he is in operation in our lives, because when we make a vow of devotion to him uh, in this retreat, one of the people that was sharing was said, Michelangelo, he got it wrong. We've all seen the picture, right, where it's the fingers touching. There's nothing about fingers touching in Genesis. It's about faces together. God didn't touch Adam's finger. He breathed in him. 
and gave him life. The Ruach HaKodesh, it says in the Hebrew. When you and I make a vow of devotion to Christ, we're not touching fingers. He breathes life into us. Spiritual life. The Holy Spirit makes his home here and in there. And then he begins the work of taking the truth of God's word and revealing it to us in certain areas of our lives to break us down for the breakthrough and the healing and the transformation that needs to come. And I would suggest to you tonight that one of the great differences between those of us who get all the breakthroughs that God destined us to have, there's one thing that separates who we are and who he's called us to be, and it's this one little simple Jewish word, Shema. To listen and obey. I'm going to invite you to stand, and as you do, I'm going to pray. Vanessa's going to come in a minute and give us some instruction. Holy Father, help us, help us, help us. We do not want to settle for mediocrity. We do not want to rest on our laurels when it comes to this journey and this call of transformation. Regardless for each of us how far apart listening and doing might be, I pray that when we get to this Saturday, 12 months from now, that people, everyone, that gap's going to close. Instead of being two ideas in the same life, it's going to be one coin, two sides. Reflexive obedience, oh God. Help us to do the heavy lifting. Help us to trust the truth of your word. Help us Help us to let your Holy Spirit break down everything that needs to be broken and build up everything that needs to be birthed. In Jesus' name. Come on, in Jesus' name. Everybody sit together. Amen. Vanessa's going to give us some instructions.